Will you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark? And we will read from the 11th verse of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 from the 11th verse. Let me quickly set the context for you. Jesus has just once again fed a great multitude. He has demonstrated his power, his grace, and yet in the wake of that, the religious leaders continue stubbornly, deliberately, and wickedly to refuse to acknowledge him as the Son of God, the Savior given by God for the life of the world. And so we read in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they, that is his disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Reading the Bible is both richly encouraging, but also deeply unsettling. It's richly encouraging because when we read the Word of God, we read of the Creator of all things taking to do with men and women, boys and girls who have fallen from Him in their first head, Adam, and who have willfully and deliberately continued in that rebellion. We read marvelously that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We read of the many 
great promises that God Himself personally makes in His Word. He tells His children, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. He tells us that He understands our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so, reading the Bible can be richly encouraging, but at the same time, it can be deeply unsettling. And the reason for that is the Bible honestly confronts us with who we are. It tells us that far from being the paragons we often imagine ourselves to be, we have all of us fallen short of the glory of God. And even when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we are always but a step away from spiritual disaster. We do not love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not love one another remotely as we should. We read in the Bible of eminent saints falling drastically, tragically into sin. And at times when we read the Bible, we want to say, Lord, did you have to show me that in such graphic technicolor? Could you not somehow have just mentioned it in the passing? And the Lord, as it were, says, no, you need to know how wickedly, how vilely, how pervasively sin can take hold in your life in an instant. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here in these verses, we see Jesus' disciples at best behaving bizarrely and at worst behaving like unbelievers. Let me walk through the passage with you and then focus on two particular aspects that I hope will speak God helping us into our lives this evening. The context is that Jesus, as I said, has just remarkably, gloriously, unfathomably fed a great multitude with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. And then these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the separated ones, come to Him. Now, the Pharisees were not modernists. They were not first-century liberals. They were first-century fundamentalists. They believed every word in what we call the Old Testament. They believed that God was one. They believed that He created all things out of nothing in the space of six days by His own Word. They were men who believed, so they said, every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. They come to Jesus, and they begin to argue with Him, looking for a sign. Now, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. 
What were these men wanting? They had witnessed Jesus prior to this through the testimony of multitudes feeding another great multitude. They had seen him raise the dead, heal a blind man, cure a deaf man, and yet here they are seeking a sign from heaven to test him. And Mark says something very, very remarkable but very significant concerning the holy humanity of our Savior. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus is deeply distressed. He is inwardly convulsed. That's the language. By the hardness of heart exhibited by these religious leaders. He's astonished at their willful, deliberate blindness and hardness. And he sighed deeply. But then, as the narrative continues, Mark tells us that it's not simply the Pharisees who distress Jesus. It's Jesus' own disciples who distress him, bewilder him. He says to them, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus said to them, Are you serious? Why on earth are you worried about bread? Now, these men had seen Jesus feed multitudes with a few loaves and a few fish. By their side in this boat was the bread of life. And they're worried about not having enough bread for breakfast. And Jesus, aware of this, poses eight questions. Did you notice the, the unfolding question after question after question? Eight times Jesus questions them. Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And in verse 21, he said to them, Do you, my privileged, chosen, beloved disciples, do you not understand? These men had witnessed two astonishing, miraculous events. Have you ever thought what it must have been like? Or have you ever thought to yourself, I would love to have been there? This little boy comes and Philip brings him and says, well, he's got five loaves and two fish. And you're thinking, well, that's not going to do much for so many. And then Jesus prays, lifts up his eyes to heaven, and 
astonishingly, bewilderingly, unimaginably, somehow, by the power of God, initiated by the prayer of Jesus, the bread multiplies, the fish multiplies. Have you ever thought, if I had been there, that would have persuaded me that Jesus was the sent one of God? He is the promised Messiah. He is the one who has come from God to be the Savior of the people of God. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven. Mark is highlighting in a very juxtaposed fashion, but in a very clear fashion, how exasperated and distressed Jesus was with the unbelief of the Pharisees, and how exasperated and distressed he was with his own disciples. Let me make two very simple points that I think take us to the heart of the narrative. In this narrative, we are confronted by this very humbling truth that the most privileged of believers can behave and think and speak like unbelievers. These disciples had been made clean by the Word of Christ. So Jesus says in John 13, they had come to believe in Him as the Messiah sent by God, promised by God. But here they are thinking and speaking and acting like unbelievers. And this is a note that the Bible confronts us with almost from the beginning of redemptive history. Think of Abraham, three occasions, Abraham, the friend of God. What a remarkable statement, the friend of God, the father of all who believe, says Paul in Romans 4. In Genesis 12, he imperils the moral integrity and purity of his wife, Sarah, they go down to Egypt. He says, well, you know, you're a beautiful woman. Let's pretend that you're my sister because if they think you're my wife, they might just kill me and take you. He, he lies. He, he behaves like an unbeliever. Then later in chapter 16, God had promised him an heir in whom God's covenant promises would be forwarded in the world. But Abraham listens to his wife, and, and he goes in and, and has sexual relations with Hagar, and there's a 13-year silence between the end of Genesis 16 and the beginning of Genesis 17. And then, amazingly, he does it again. Chapter 20, again with Abimelech down in Egypt. He imperils the purity of his wife. He, he retreats into unbelief, and the Bible placards it as if to say even the best, the choicest, the finest, the most privileged 
of God's believing people can sink into the very depths of sin and unbelief. We see it, of course, dramatically in the example of David, the man after God's own heart, the man after God's own heart who seduces another man's wife, conspires to murder her husband, And the Bible tells it in such graphic detail that times it's hard to read. You want to say, Lord, could you not just have said David did the dastardly deed and leave it at that? But line upon line, we are drawn into the horror of David's sin, this man after God's own heart, the sweet singer of Israel, the composer of many of the Psalms. And it's the Lord again saying to His covenant people, how quickly, how easily the best and the choicest of my servants can fall into sin, grievous sin. One more example, think of Peter What a man Peter was, transformed by the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, restored by the Lord Jesus Christ to Himself after His catastrophic denial of Christ. Christ restores him. The Spirit of God comes and in new covenant power and freshness indwells him. He becomes the great proclaimer of Christ. Thousands are converted at Pentecost. And then you read Galatians 2, and Paul tells us that he had to confront Peter to his face because he had begun to equivocate with the gospel. Certain Judaizers had come down from Jerusalem, and Peter astonishingly gives way to them, gives way to men who are adding works to faith and and derogating from the glory and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning work. And Paul has to say, I confronted Peter to his face. The best and the most privileged of men and women, boys and girls, not least in a congregation like this, can easily make shipwreck of their faith. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, maybe the question we need to ask is, well, well, Ian, why did these things happen? Why did these awful sins overtake these privileged, blessed men? Why? Well, no doubt we could give many reasons, but I think there is one fundamental reason, one principial foundational reason. They forgot God. You think, is it as simple as that? It's as simple as that and as profound as that. I often think of 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul, as he writes to a dysfunctional church where immorality and theological confusion has begun to um, find its way into the life of the church, on six occasions in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says to this church, do you not know? Do you not know? Now, this was a church that under God, the Apostle Paul had founded. This was an apostolically founded church. Imagine the Apostle Paul as your first pastor. And yet he says to them six times in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know? Now, notionally they knew. If you said to Abraham, Abraham, you've forgotten God, he would look at you and say, how dare you? How dare you? Notionally, theologically, doctrinally, they had not forgotten God. But existentially, affectionally, personally, they had become dislocated or distanced from God. Maybe it's the older I get, but more and more, when people ask me questions about anything and everything to do with the Christian faith, I'm almost always finding myself today saying to them, let's begin with God. Let's begin with God. And people look at me and say, well, well, that's good, Ian. Can we not talk about that tomorrow? I've got this burning issue, this, this great question. But you see, it's so much of our failure in the Christian life is because we have become distanced and dislocated from who God is. That's why the great need every Lord's Day, morning and evening, is for pastors and elders to set before congregations who God is. Behold your God. I ache at times in Christian services of worship to be lifted up in my spirit to God. I don't want to hear at the beginning of a service about this, that, and the other, important though they may be. I want in the opening prayer and in the opening praise to be told, behold your God. See how great He is, how glorious He is. The great privileges we have are privileges that we can too easily, far too easily assume as our inheritance. But it's not the privileges of the gospel that we are to focus on. It's the one who gave us the privileges. I think it was Martin, no, it wasn't Martin Busser, it was Philip Melanchthon who wrote the first evangelical uh, systematic theology of the Loki Communes who said we must never separate the benefits of Christ from the person of Christ. 
And one of the great dangers in Reformed Christianity is that we, we so focus on the benefits of the gospel that our hearts become distanced from the God of the gospel. And so here are privileged men, and Jesus is exasperated with them. That's the language. Do you not understand? What's wrong with you? But then secondly, I want to notice with you the emotional frustration that was drawn out of the heart of Jesus because of his disciples' unbelief. You see it in verses 17 and 18 in this series of questions that he puts to them. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Your hearts? Men I have called to myself, ministered the word of life to, exampled the grace of God to, have, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a great danger that we construct a fantasy Jesus. A, a Jesus who is, who is never really upset, who exhibits a humanity that's unmoved, even, a humanity that glides across this world, taking everything in its stride. This is a fantasy Jesus. The Jesus we encounter in the Gospels is a real Jesus. His humanity is not a plaster-cast humanity. It's a true humanity. Now, this morning, perhaps I somewhat intrigued you a little, uh, quoting Isaiah 49, verse 4, where the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world, says, my life has been lived in vain. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, chebel, chebel. My life is, is empty. It's the same word tohu you get in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. My life is, is a failure, he's saying. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, how could he then be my Savior? If he couldn't say that, he couldn't be your Savior because his humanity would be an unreal humanity. We don't need a superman. We need someone who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, who rises with anger against wickedness and vileness, who doesn't treat unbelief casually and stoically. Here we, we see holy, sinless frustration and indignation and perplexity in the heart of our Savior. We need to understand how vital the true humanity of Christ is to our salvation.
It's as a truly human man, united to his Godhead that he takes to Calvary's cross, who stands before God in our place as the perfect man, the better than Adam, who never sinned, who never grieved God, who never disobeyed God, but whose heart was so aligned with that of his Father that when he saw evil and wickedness, his whole being convulsed with emotion against it. Let me close just by trying to earth these two thoughts. Could it be said of you or of me tonight, do you not understand? Maybe you're different from me, but I find, I find to my shame, I know so much in my head that's true, but my life does not always align with my head. There are times when my life is a contradiction of what I know to be true. And the Lord is saying to me every day of my life, Ian, do you not understand? Have you forgotten who I am and who my Father in heaven is and who the Spirit of God is who indwells you? How can you speak like that, think like that, act like that? Do you not understand? But then the second thing I want to say is simply this. In these verses, we see a Savior whose humanity is our humanity, sin apart. You know, we read in the 103rd Psalm, don't we? Is it verse 10? He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. It's a great verse, isn't it? But you know, in the New Testament, that verse is filled out. He knows our frame because he became our frame. He became dust. Do you know on the throne of God tonight there is glorified dust? It's an astonishing thought, isn't it? There is glorified humanity on the throne of God. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, He is able therefore to help us. He is not unable to sympathize with us in our struggles, our trials, our disappointments, our frustrations, because He knows our frame. He became our frame. And so He is able to help us because He has stood where we stand and never once capitulated to sin. How easy it is, like Jesus' disciples, 
to live at times as if we were actually unbelievers. The antidote to that is day by day to sink our lives into who God is. Sink our lives into His greatness, His grace, His love, His kindness, His patience, His long-suffering. I don't think there's a day in my life I don't bless God that He is long-suffering towards me. Sink your life into who God is. This last word. Jesus' disciples came to him one day. They were bewildered. They were fearful. And Jesus said to them, four words, have faith in God. Know what he was doing? He was saying to them, become theologians. Become gospel, experiential, affectional theologians. Have faith in God. We think too much about faith and too little about God. We think too much about justification and not Jesus Christ, our justifying righteousness. We think too much about grace and not about Jesus Christ, who is full of grace. Have faith in God. Amen. May the Lord bless to us his word.